last Sunday night, my wife said, uh, you know what? I, I really want some ice cream. And we, we live close to McConnell's on Mission Street. And here's a marriage tip for you. When your wife or your, your husband asks for ice cream, you always say yes. It's a win-win. You get to be self-sacrificing and serving, and you get ice cream. So, um, so I went to McConnell's. And as usual, there was a long line out through the parking lot. I waited in line. I didn't have my phone with me, so I had to wait like they did in the old days with nothing to do but just stand in line. And um, as I'm getting closer, I'm thinking of all the flavors that I'm going to ask for before I get the ones that I know I'm going to buy. Um, and I get right up to the register. The, I'm the next person in line, and I reach into my pocket, and I realize I'd forgotten my wallet. No cash, no way to buy ice cream. Marriage tip, don't come home without ice cream. Um, regret, regret. If only I had gotten my wallet. Such a simple mistake. But regret, um, it can be over small things. It can also be over big things, deep, heavy, painful things. Regret has a way of, of turning your bed into a time machine at night that only sends you back to the worst moments, the worst things you did, the opportunities missed. It's a way of reminding you of your sins and, and keeping you awake at night as you think about the, the thing you should have done in college, the things you shouldn't have done. As you remember the, the parenting fails that you made, as you look back on your divorce or your abortion or the failed friendships and you wonder, what happened? What did I, where did it go wrong? Regret um, has a way of pulling us back there and bringing shame and contempt on ourselves. And it reminds me of a song that I used to listen to. I won't tell you who wrote it so that you won't know how cool I was at one point. Um, but it went like this. It's four in the morning. I'm lying in bed. A tape of my failures playing inside my head. It's heartaches and hard knocks and things I don't know. Does that sound like regret to you? It's regret. Four in the morning. Lying in bed. And he says this. He says, I listen and I wonder, where will it go? Where will it go? Where will I go with the regret? Where will this regret take me? Where will my mistakes take me? Well, the Apostle Paul knew a thing or two about regret. If you remember the Apostle's story, he wasn't always an apostle and he wasn't always named Paul. In fact, he went by the name of Saul of Tarshish. And he was actually one who was persecuting this little group of people called the Way who worshipped a man named Jesus who died on the cross that they claimed was God himself come to make satisfaction for sin, come to atone for the sins of humanity on that cross. And Paul murdered them. And when he met Jesus, 
Jesus actually says, you're not just persecuting my people, you're persecuting me. So how did Paul, who, who did the things that, that we would consider unspeakable, how did Paul sleep at night? Well, Paul knew a thing or two about regret, but he also knew a thing or two about the gospel. Because if you know the story, he had a Damascus Road experience. He had the original Damascus Road experience. And he saw the light, and he met Jesus, and he turned, turned from his sins, and he worshiped Jesus, and he experienced that grace of having his sins forgiven, even the sins of murdering God's people forgiven. And that moment changed everything for Paul. It changed the way he saw himself, the way he saw the world, the way he saw the future, the way he saw the past, the way he saw other people. The gospel of Jesus changed everything for him. And it even changed the way he saw regret. And we're going to look at three parts of this passage that was read. um, And they show how the gospel changes things for Paul and for the Corinthians and for us. We're going to look at gospel community, gospel grief, and gospel joy. Um, We have to understand, as as we look at this passage, the, the first verse that was read, verse two says, make room in your hearts for us. Now, what is Paul talking about here? See, this is um, this passage. I think it, like Paul is kind of peeling back the veil, and he's letting us look into this intimate relationship between him as a pastor and an apostle, and this church in Corinth. If you've ever read anyone's love letters, or more than that, if you've ever read anyone's um, hate letters, uh, that's kind of what's going on here. Paul is showing us things that we normally don't see. He's showing us conversations that normally happen um, in privacy. And Paul is showing us something about his relationship to the Corinthians because he says there's something to learn here about community. Now, what happened? If you you read this passage, you, you hear that there's a conflict. There's something that's happened in the past, and there's there's a regret over that offense. If you flip back to chapter two of this same book, Paul actually tells them, this is why I'm writing to you, to kind of repair this conflict that we've had. And what's happened is um, we, don't, we don't actually know exactly what happened, but we know that it was public and that, that there was a rebellion against Paul, that the Corinthians rejected Paul. And it, and it wasn't just personal it was also spiritual. It was sinful. They were leaving behind Paul's doctrine. And they didn't just say, we love Paul, but he's crazy. They said, Paul is evil. Paul is bad. He's not one of us. And in the meantime, Paul left and sent um, people back and even sent a letter back to the Corinthians. In that chapter two, it talks about a tearful letter a severe letter that Paul wrote to them, confronting them over this conflict and urging them to repent. And he picks it up here in this passage, and he refers back to that event. And whenever someone wrongs you, as Paul had been wronged, you know, there's a couple of options you could take, right? You could um, shake the dust off your feet 
Paul could have said, well, the Corinthians are dead to me. And I'm not going to do anything else. Never going to talk to them again. Or he could have said, um, you know what? I'll just, what do you want me to say? I'll say anything. You know, I, I'll change my message. How do we get back into good graces? Let me, let me do what needs to be done to do that. Or he could have just kind of ignored it and then like walked back up into Corinth one day like nothing had ever happened. Um, aren't, aren't those the things that we do in our conflicts? Well, well, Paul actually confronted the Corinthians. And that's the thing he shows us about gospel community, is that gospel community confronts. It confronts. If we look at um, verse 4, look at what he says. He says, I'm acting with great boldness toward you. And he says, um, it's because I have great pride in you. And so he's confronting them. He's calling them out on their sin, and he's doing it with boldness. Um, in, verse, in verse 8, he even says it this way. He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Again, he's talking about that tearful, severe letter that he wrote, um, confronting the Corinthians, because gospel community confronts. Now, that may not sound like community to you. Um, I thought gospel community would mean there would be no fights. I thought if we were just all Christians, surely we would love each other. We could just get along. Why all the fighting? Have you ever said that? I've said that. I've felt that. I've heard it from lots of non-Christians. I like Jesus, but his people seem to fight all the time. Well, there's there's a healthy way to fight. And there's an unhealthy way to fight. And gospel community doesn't mean that you don't fight. It means that when you do fight, it's over the things that matter. And this type of confrontation is Paul confronting them over their sin and over their doctrine. And he's saying, you have walked away from the gospel, and he's urging them to repent. And what Paul is doing here is he's saying, I actually love you so much that I actually care for your soul and I'm not going to let you wonder. And I'm going to do the hard thing. I'm going to write a hard letter and I'm going to confront you over this. And sometimes when you love people, it means that you confront them over sins. But it's not just a community that confronts. If it was just a community that confronts, we would say That's, that might be a little harsh. But it's also a community that comforts. See, Paul can actually confront them in the gospel because they're going the same place. And he wants them them to know the grace of God and to follow God. He doesn't want them to wander away. He's confronting them in love. Now, some people today will talk about we have to confront, you know, uh, we have to speak the truth in love. But then they sort of redefine love in such a way that it's just the cold, hard facts. And so it ends up kind of being the truth without love. But Paul says, I have pride for you. I have, I have great joy that I've shared with you, and I love you so much that I'm going to confront you. But I also love you so much that I'm going to comfort and be comforted by you. In this, in this um, gospel community, I think they can confront one another because they know that they've been saved by Jesus. 
And they're actually even willing to risk a relationship because they know that their identity is defined by Christ and not by what the Corinthians think of them. It's not by what someone else thinks of you. But then if you, if you know that God is your comfort, it also means that you can receive comfort from others. And that's exactly what Paul says. And this is even more shocking to me in verses 5 and 6 and 7. He says, when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Now, does it bring you comfort just a little bit that even the apostle Paul was afraid? Even the apostle Paul had fear within, maybe even over confronting the Corinthians, um, maybe over the persecution that was around him. He says, but it, it wasn't just our bodies that were being um, attacked. We were also at fear within. And he says, but God who comforts the downcast. Now we're downcast. You can almost translate it depressed. Paul says, I was afraid and depressed and God comforted me. Now, normally we think of the comfort that comes from God as something that kind of descends upon us while we're praying, while we're singing a hymn, um, while we're in worship, and and comfort does come that way. Um, But look how it came to Paul. It wasn't a warm feeling that fell upon him. He says, God comforted me. God who comforts the downcast or the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. He says, when I got a knock on my door and I saw that face of Titus, my friend, God comforted me in that moment. God sending Titus was a comfort to Paul. And I think what that tells us is that we can comfort one another in community. And it may even be that, the, that to be comforted by God means that, that he can use means to comfort us. It doesn't have to just drop down from the heavens with a warm feeling. It can be a phone call, a text, an email, a good meal with a friend. That can actually be God at work in you, comforting you, lifting you out of your fear and depression, ministering comfort to you in the midst of fear and depression. And he says, I wasn't only comforted by the coming of Titus, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. See, Paul says, I'm comforted not just by the messenger, but by the message, because Titus came and reported to him that the Corinthians had read the severe letter and repented. And they were repaired in this relationship with Paul. They had turned back to him and back to the gospel. And he says, I was comforted by Titus, just the physical presence of Titus. And I was comforted by this message that you had repented. And you know, if we're living in gospel community, it means that yes, we will confront one another because we see things that, um, we see blind spots in one another. But it also means that we comfort. And sometimes in our greatest pain, it's, you can walk into a hospital room, you can walk into someone's living room, and it's your, your flesh and blood that brings them comfort. You may think, I don't have the words to say, I don't know, I don't even know the right way to pray for this. And, and when you think about your own life, the people who have comforted you, isn't it their presence that comforts? Maybe you even think, I don't remember what they said, 
but I remember them walking through the door and being with me in my pain, being with me in my sorrow. And that's what gospel community looks like, is that Paul's saying, even those moments, the Lord is at work to comfort his people through one another. So this means that, um, that this type of community actually can proclaim something to the world so that they would know us not by our fighting, they'd know us by our love, which can even abide conflict, can even abide confrontation, and also promises comfort, which means that gospel community hurts from time to time, but gospel community also heals. Now, I remember um, some years ago, I had a friend confront me about some things. And, um, and it wasn't just like, Joshua, you did this offense. This thing offended me. It was, Joshua, this is what I've noticed about you. And that's a harder thing to apologize for, right? And you know what I did? I, I had some thoughts go through my mind. The first was like, defend, 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 uh, which is what we normally do when we're confronted. The second thought was make it right. Do whatever you have to do to make it right. But what I actually did um, is I broke down and cried like a grown man does from time to time. Um, And the reason I was crying is it was in part because I was seeing something that I hadn't seen before. And I knew I needed to change and repent. But it was because I thought that relationship was over. I thought it was dead. And, um, but, but after the tears were gone, that friend was still there. He was still there. And I wonder how many of us, I, I'm very fortunate to say that was, that was one of the only times in my life that I experienced it, but I'm very fortunate to say I experienced the feeling of wronging someone and they didn't run away. They actually stayed with me. And I wonder if you've felt that. If you've ever like, or been confronted by someone, and they stayed with you. That's what I think Paul is offering the Corinthians, and I think he's doing that to proclaim something to the world about the gospel, and also to invite us to to build community that looks like that, to stay connected even in times of confrontation. But I think what we have to do is actually understand a little bit about their grief and a little about their pain. And this is what Paul actually does in verse 9. He says, you had godly grief. Verse 9, he says, "Um, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, not because I hurt you, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. He sets up these two two things, worldly grief or or grief or sorrow that is according to the world or godly grief, grief or sorrow that is according to God. Now, if you've been with us these past few weeks, you know that that Paul likes to use these uh, dichotomies of saying, We live by faith, not by sight. We live according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. So what does he mean by godly grief and worldly grief? 
Well, you might look at it and think, well, as Christians, we grieve um, with hope because we know that God works all things together for good, for his glory, that he will redeem all things. He'll restore us, that he's bringing a new creation, a new world. Um, And so we have this hope. And so when we're grieving, we grieve with one eye on the present and one eye on the future. And all that is true, but that's not what he's talking about in these verses. Because he's not talking about loss. He's not talking about death. And if you actually want to go to see where he talks about death and how we grieve death with hope, you'd go to 1 Thessalonians 4, because he does say that very thing there. But here in this letter, he's talking about a relationship, grief and sorrow and hurt in this relationship, remember? So maybe you could say, well, as, as some have said, well, worldly grief is emotional, but godly grief is spiritual. But then you read this passage and you realize how deeply emotional Paul is. And he even talked about the tearful letter that he sent before. So it can't be that godly grief is not emotional, that only worldly grief is emotional. So then maybe you say, well, it could be that worldly grief is the regret, is the the sorrow and the pain that you feel for getting caught, for the consequences of your actions. And godly grief is grief for wounding another person or wounding the heart of God. And there's something to that, right? Because we all know someone who has wounded us and wept over that wounding, but didn't change and continued to wound us again and again. And and we know that that's not not a good thing. We also know that... um, that we should have some sorrow over our sin, and we should think of it not just in terms of the way it hurts us, but also the way it hurts God and other people. That's true. But this, this, um, this look at godly grief and worldly grief also has some problems. Um, I, think it's, I, I, don't, I don't think it's quite right. And I'll tell you why. The reason why is because, um, one, I don't know that there were consequences here. What what was going to happen to the Corinthians if they had continued to side with Paul? Were they going to go to jail? Were they going to like get caught? No, they had already rejected him. And so I don't think he's talking about just the, the worldly grief of consequences in this relationship. Also, if we look at um, a really well-known example of this, we see in the life and ministry of Jesus and his apostles, we see Jesus um, predicting that two of his apostles would betray him in different ways, Peter and Judas. And, and what we see after their betrayal is that they both wept. Peter betrayed Jesus by denying him three times, and he went out and wept bitterly. But Judas also wept when he realized what he had done and he tried to undo it and he couldn't undo it. And then he actually hung himself and threw the money back to the people who had paid him to betray Jesus. He had sorrow over what he had done and so did Peter, but there was a difference. And I think that difference is what Paul is talking about here. I think what he's saying is that 
when we, um, when we have worldly sorrow, we have regret that doesn't go anywhere. It stays with us. We have no remedy for it. But when we have godly sorrow or godly grief over our sin, it actually goes somewhere. We take it to the throne of God and we receive grace and mercy. See, if, if worldly grief is just a fear of getting caught and godly grief means that you have to feel really, really sorry for your sins. See, some people say, you're, you're just sorry that you got caught. You're not sorry that you wounded the heart of God. And, and if it's just that, we would ask, well, how sorry do you have to be? And then you may even ask the question, have I ever repented at all? Because I don't know that I've actually been sorry enough. And look, what happens if you actually do that? If you, if you actually say, I've got to be sorry enough before, before God will forgive me, you actually stay in your regret. You stay with your sins. And, um, and it leads to death. And, uh, and it looks like this. You hear this a lot of times. People will say, I just can't believe I did that. I suck. I'm the worst. I'm so bad. I just know I'm so bad. And they stay there. And they don't want to take it to God. Maybe you felt this way. Maybe you felt like, you know what? If I'm going to come before the throne of God, I really need to feel sorry enough for my sin before I get there. I really have to work up some emotion. And, um, and I don't have it yet, so I'm not going to go before him with my sin. And I would say if you're looking at it that way, then you might be looking at it according to the world. If you think you have to work up enough guilt before you go to God, then you may be doing penance for your sins. You may be saying, wait, I will emotionally um, wound myself before I come to God. Let me pay for this sin. Let me, let me pay for my sin emotionally before I come to God and ask for forgiveness. You know, the old hymn um, says, you know, come ye sinners, poor and wretched. It says, if you tarry till you're better, you may never come at all. And I would add, if you tarry until you're sorry enough, will you ever come at all? The pictures we have throughout the scriptures of repentance are people who made the slightest turn to God and they were received with joy. Do you remember, you can almost hear the echoes of the prodigal son in this. Was he sorry enough for his sins? Did he know how much he had grieved the heart of his father? No, he was hungry. And he said, I'm going to turn and go back to my father. And he was received with joy. He was received with a marriage, with a, with a feast, with a fatted calf and a robe and a ring. If we wait until we have enough sorrow for our sins, we may never come to the throne of God. We may never turn to him and repent. We may stay in our sin and live with our regrets. But if we know that we're actually redeemed and forgiven. As the psalmist, as David said earlier, that when we read Psalm 32, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Happy is the man whose sins are forgiven. If you know that your sins are forgiven and you know where to take your regret, you will run to the throne of God. You will not wait 
until you feel sorry enough. And a 19th century Scottish pastor said it this way. He says, um, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace. And, for, and all for sinners, even the chief, live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love, and repose in his almighty arms. See, what Paul knows as one who is the chief of sinners is if he looks at his sin, he won't be able to get out of bed in the morning. If he looks at his sin, he won't be able to sleep a wink at night. But if he looks to the mercy and the grace of the Lord Jesus, then that grief over his sin will actually lead to life and salvation. Because repentance is turning to God. And when we do turn to God, Paul shows us that we see something far greater than just absolution or mere pardon. We actually see joy. And this, is, this is actually tells us something on how we confront uh, one another, is that if, if we don't see the joy of God, and if we don't have joy ready to offer the person we confront, then we're just using regret and shame to turn them into good behavior, rather than using mercy and grace to bring them to repentance, to bring them to God. Because Paul says, when you repent, what is waiting for you is joy, gospel joy. Um, if you remember, we talked about chapter two. He says, this is the reason why I'm writing. And he actually says, the reason I'm writing to you is that you would share in my joy. In verse four, he says that I am overflowing with joy because of you. And it's all through this past verse nine. He says, it, as it is, I rejoice because you were grieved into repenting. And in verse 13, he says, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus. This whole passage is soaked in joy. And what he's doing to the Corinthians is he's saying, I want to repair this relationship with you. And this is the way it works. It's not just, hey, water under the bridge just go back to the way things were before. It's not, I'm going to make you pay. You were going to pay for this for a long time. No, actually, he says, you repented and I rejoiced. And actually, I have more joy now than I had at the beginning. Somehow, through this conflict and this repair of conflict, the relationship is stronger and Paul has more joy and he wants them to know it. He doesn't hide it from them. He wants them to know that he feels joy when he thinks about them. And what he's doing here is he's actually playing a role. He's reading from a script. Because he knows, as the chief of sinners, when he repented, the day he repented, he went from becoming the one who persecuted Christ to the one who was loved by Christ. He went from becoming a murderer to righteous in God's sight, a son of God. And God didn't wait for Paul to experience his joy. 
Remember, God tells us that when a sinner repents, when we repent, all of heaven rejoices. The angels rejoice. Even for the chief of sinners like Paul. So Paul knows the joy of God, and he says, I want you to know my joy, because I want you to know a relationship that sticks by you through conflict, through confrontation, that turns you to the gospel, that points you to repentance, and actually shares joy, where the end of it all is more increased joy. I want you to know that, because if you can, if you can hear my joy in this letter, then maybe you'll be able to feel the joy of God the Father who is rejoicing over this far more than I am right now. When you repent, how do you think God responds? Do you think he says, okay, water under the bridge? Do you think he says, yeah, 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 got that covered back 2,000 years ago. It's done. Do you think he says, um, I'm going to need to see a few more tears before I really will promise you my company? Or do you think he throws a party? Because what Paul is telling us is that when we repent, it leads to life and rejoicing. And that maybe that party for the prodigal son isn't something that just happens once through life. It's something that happens every moment, every hour, every time we're aware of our own sin and we turn and throw ourselves at the mercy of God. That there is a feast and a party and rejoicing in heaven over our repentance. St. Augustine said it this way, it's in your bulletin. He said, in God's home, there is an everlasting party. The choirs of angels keep eternal festival for the eternally present face of God is joy never diminished. Is that how you see God? I think there are two ways of looking at God. And if you see God as one who's gonna batter your conscience enough for you to really accept your apology, my guess is that you will stay in your sin and you will know regret. But if you see God as the eternally joyful, who is ready to forgive and rejoice over you and with you, then you will run to him. You will run to him in times of goodness, and you will run to him in times of trouble. Isn't this what we want for our children, those of us who are parents? We want to parent in such a way that our children run to us when they're in trouble instead of running away from us. And if you see what Paul is offering here, you will run to God like a child running into the arms of his father. My children, as you saw, are young and moody. And there are times when I come home and they yell no. But there are times when I come home and they're playing in the yard and I open the gate and I walk in and they say, Daddy! And they run to me. And I pick them up in my arms and we spin around and I see the joy on their face and they see the joy on my face because they know that it is the joy of their father to love them. That's what Paul is offering us here the joy of the Father. And if you know it, you will run to him. 
even a moment after your sin, when you feel the weight of it and you feel the first pain of regret and guilt, you will run to the Father to know his joy. And you will run with confidence because your sins are paid for on the cross of Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, so that he could pay for your sins, so that you wouldn't have to. And we experience this now by faith, but someday it will be sight, and someday there will be no more grief, no more sorrow, and we will live forever in that feast of joy, in that everlasting party. May it be so now by faith. Amen.